a trusted voice of truth and light. The narratives that mislead most of us aren't outright lies. They're the deliberate omission of facts that could give us a more complete picture. And a rally point for those who've accepted the reality that they are not sheep. The world needs your leadership, and the essence of leadership is using your influence wisely wherever you happen to be standing. This is The Brian Hyde Show. All right, welcome to the show, my fellow wrong thinkers. By the way, if you'd like to join the conversation today, let's do this. Phone lines are open at 801-331-8113. Again, 801-331-8113. I just, I feel like we're starting off on a bizarre note this time around, only because I've seen a couple really bizarre stories within the last little bit. Um, Let's start with this one. You know, if you're familiar with the, the Babylon Bee, you know that the, the Babylon Bee is one of the funniest satirical websites out there. They have uh, really great content. It's always topical. It's, it's funny and it's uh, somewhat believable. But would you believe that uh, the, Federalist, uh, the Federalist is reporting now that uh, the Babylon Bee has been demonetized? by Facebook after publishing an article that satirized Senator Maisie Hirono's comments during the Amy Coney Barrett hearings in a fictional depiction. They, they basically, uh, the, the headline, I believe, said, Senator Hirono demands ACB be weighed against a duck to see if she's a witch. Now, any Monty Python fan worth his or her salt is going to see that and be like, oh, yeah, <laughs> that was a great uh, that was a great uh, sketch from the, uh, you know, in search of the Holy Grail. But Facebook is uh, not playing around here, demonetizing the Christian political satire page, saying that uh, they claimed that this incited violence the Bee's CEO, Seth Dillon, announced the demonetization yesterday in a tweet claiming the big tech company pulled down the article based on a regurgitated joke from a Monty Python movie. He said, so after a manual review, Facebook says they stand by their decision to pull down this article and demonetize our page. I'm not kidding. He wrote, they say this article incites violence. It's literally a regurgitated joke from a Monty Python movie. And then he asks in another tweet, in what universe does a fictional quote as part of an obvious joke constitute a genuine incitement to violence? How does context not come into play here? They're asking us to edit the article and not speak publicly about internal content reviews. Whoops, did I just tweet this? Good for him. Good for him for pointing out their hypocrisy. And Dylan pointed out the absurdity of Facebook's critique I don't know, man. If, if we're getting to the point where you can't even have humor, and I guess we're, we're at that point now, that's a pretty, pretty stark realization. From the article, the satirical article, Senator Hirono demands ACB be weighed against a duck to see if she's a witch. The satirical version of Hirono says, in addition to being a senator, I am also quite wise in the ways of science. Everyone knows witches burn because they are made of wood. 
I think I read that somewhere. Wood floats and so do ducks. So logically, if Amy Coney Barrett weighs as much as this duck I found in this reflection in the reflection pool outside, she is a witch and must be burned. Now, the article goes on to describe the obviously fictional and ridiculous response by the fake Judiciary Committee, claiming that congressional aides brought in the bathroom scale from Jerry Nadler's office, while Democrat senators nodded in solemn approval while the Republicans yelled and pounded on their desks a bunch before pouncing and booking interviews with before pouncing and booking interviews with Tucker Carlson. Now, apparently, the Babylon Bee has had multiple censorship run ins with big tech and media companies over their content in the past. Back in August, Twitter banned the Bee's page without warning. And while the big tech company claimed the ban was an accident, the suspension came at the same time Twitter purged its site of several accounts that tend to mock the oppressiveness of woke culture by pretending to espouse extreme versions of leftist ideology. That's fun, too, because the article here includes the tweet from the Babylon Bee. We are back. Twitter destroyed our headquarters with a drone strike, but we're being assured it was an honest mistake. The Bee has also gone head-to-head with the so-called fact-checking site Snopes over the content in their articles. Now, while the Bee operates satirically and even has its own non-satirical page, not the Bee, which is separate from its comedic content, Snopes regularly issues fact-checks about their articles, proclaiming them to be false or misleading. I mean, people are concerned right now. I hear a lot of people say, you know, I'm worried that we're going to be we're going to kick off World War Three. They're looking at some of the stuff happening around the world or worse. We're going to be in a civil war because they see what's happening here at home. What if I were to suggest to you that uh, right now there is a war being raged at this moment? And it's a war for your mind. It's a war for your allegiance for access to how you think and how, how you believe and, and the way that you perceive the world. In fact, I want to segue into this because there, there's been some great uh, content put out recently from uh, Project Veritas. And they have uh, talked with, I believe it's a Google insider who has said, no, we, we absolutely are told that uh, we're supposed to use use Google to shape the way people think and therefore the way people vote. Now, Google's a pretty big, they're a pretty big organization. It's not like they don't have deep pockets. Let me play you an excerpt here from the video. This is from, uh, this is from their undercover video in which uh, a Google, I don't know exactly what this guy does. He's a head of global competitive analysis for Google Cloud. Listen to what Ashwin Agrawal has to say about how Google operates. The truth is that these platforms are influencing you in a way that you didn't sign up for. That's my view. The thing that I feel worse about is that people don't know that it's happening to them. I know. That for me is the, the thing that I feel like truly, truly sad about. Well, because the algorithm could favor a certain political leaning, right, for the ads? Show you certain ads? Yes. I, I don't think it is. And I think, like, it's unfair. It's common knowledge that brands and marketing and TV advertisement influence Now, the more you see a Biden ad, the more, you know, passionate or the more sort of leaning you're going to become Biden. For Biden. You're a Democrat and you're seeing more and more Democrat. You're not given an opportunity to change your mind. Yeah. 
And I think you can feed so much democratic ads. So this is content that they have not wanted to see or they've signed up to see. They're just mm-hmm. being fed, right? All day. So if I'm on YouTube, you know, two hours a day, and I'm given like 50 ads, all uh, democratic ads, some people, when they would find out about that, may become very uncomfortable. Mm-hmm. Right? Because it's not like normal TV advertising. Where it's the personalization shows, aspect of it. Yeah. yeah, where it shows both. It's yeah. favoring one. Yeah. Or like even the the idea of like, you know, Biden creating five hundred ads, one for each mission. Yeah. But each of us only seeing the one that we care about. Yeah. I mean that stuff can be very creepy. I think even YouTube and Google search is showing you things that it believes you want to see. That's based on their... Your pattern, your history. On one hand, it is extremely convenient uh, when you're looking for content for entertainment. Yeah. But it's really horrible for like a diverse... Viewpoint, yeah. Right? You know, being a Trump supporter is... Uh, you know, being a, a bad person. If I say that tomorrow, that I'm a Trump supporter, I'd probably lose my job. All right. It's hard to hear. I understand. It's it's probably best to watch the video with the subtitles. But the bottom line is what what this guy is talking about is that uh, these platforms are influencing you in ways you didn't sign up for. Look, it's not a secret, right? I mean, we understand Facebook and and Google and other of these uh, big tech giants. They collect the information. They, they know by the things we search, the websites we visit, even the messages that we send. All of that information is kept and carefully sifted to, to find the things that make us tick. So it can reflect back to us, here, this is what you're interested in. I know people who are saying, look, it's really creepy. I haven't even said out loud that I'm, you know, interested in finding a new sofa and suddenly I've got ads for sofas or sectionals showing up, you know, unbidden. And it's one thing to say, well, it's just kind of cool that, you know, they've got the uh, algorithm and the artificial intelligence that can make stuff like this happen. But what if it's being used to influence you? What if it is being used to, to lock you into an echo chamber, essentially, of your own creation? I don't know. You know, everybody who says, well, maybe it's time to unplug. I'm beginning to think that maybe maybe that's a, a good start. Of course, we could also work on honing our critical thinking skills. That seems like a pretty good idea as well. We'll be back right after this. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. All right, welcome back to the show. Hey, our program is brought to you in part today by Jeff Staples Real Estate. If you are listening to me from my home state of Utah, I got some good news for you. Jeff is able to help you. He is with ERA Brokers Consolidated, and he has people all throughout the state that are there to help you in what is uh, possibly one of the hottest real estate markets that, uh, that we have seen in some time. So if you're looking to sell your home for more, you're looking to buy a home for less, my advice is get a hold of Jeff. Two ways you can do it. You can go to jeffstaplesrealtor.com, jeffstaplesrealtor.com, or just go to my show notes, 
right there at the bottom of the page. Go to my show notes at thebrianhideshow.com. And at the bottom of today's show notes, you will see a link to Jeff Staples' webpage and all of his contact info. And you can contact him like that. All right, let's open up the phones here, 801-331-8113. Ray, thanks for standing by. Welcome to the show. Thank you, Brian, and um, thank you for your contribution to society. I'm, I'm wondering how bad the things have to get before people realize that, that they need you. And, and what I'm talking about here is, um, you know, free to choose. We're talking about influence here. Now, a drug dealer wants to get a person addicted, so so that person is relying on him for a product that he needs or thinks he needs while the drug dealer gets rich, you know, turning you into a, a person into a commodity. So influence is power, you know, but pure truthful influence, you know, is it deceptive? I mean, you know, what we, we want is to have two choices or more. You know, like if a person wants to influence a king or influence a nation, you know, and, and platforms can take advantage of us. They can be predatory. You know, I mean, it's just like the Bible tells us, you know, whether people think it's a fantasy or it's real, you know, the, the ultimate type of good is God, and the ultimate type of the devil is bad. So if we can understand what is good and what is bad, then we can make a choice. But if we only have bad to choose, you know, then, then we don't have a choice. You know, if we only have good to choose, we only have a choice if we're being forced. You know, but you give us information. You know, and this information that, that we need, the people need, that I don't know how bad it's going to have to get before people realize that, that the media is brainwashing people. Trump has is, is woken partially, but there's still half the nation that, you know, loves being deceived or they love to live in their comfortable life of deception. How, how bad does it have to get before people wake up, Brian? I got to wonder, too, Ray, if anybody really ever wants to admit that they've been deceived. I mean, because it makes you feel foolish, right? If, if you've ever been conned before, and we all have been conned before, um, it's a humiliating thing. It, it is absolutely devastating because at some level we feel like, how could I have been so stupid? And what's worse, everybody around me knows how stupid I was because I fell for it. But in reality, well, yes, go ahead. It's hard on the ego. Yes, it's hard on the ego. But at the same time, it is empowering if we make the correction. If we make, you know, the, the minute we, you know, or, you know, the minute we start correcting bad choices is the, the point where we gain power in our lives. And so, you know, so what if, if we feel that we've made a bad choice, you know, can't, we can either le learn the hard way or the easy way or stick our heads in the sand. Here, here. And, and actually that leads in perfectly to where I wanted to go next. Ray, thank you so much. Thank you, Brian. Take care, my friend. 801-331-8113. All right. You've heard me talk about the importance of reading books. 
And I know you're thinking, well, Brian, this seems to be your cure for everything. Why, read a book. <laughs> I'm having a heart attack. Well, here, here's a good book. This will snap you right out of it. That's, that's not what I'm getting at. I believe that if you are going to be the kind of person who can be counted on to think clearly and independently, it's going to come because you have challenged your mind and ordered your thoughts and taught yourself to think in a way that, that you don't have to wait for somebody to feed you the cues. Oh, oh, that's what I'm supposed to believe, you know. And unfortunately, there are a lot of people who, who follow this. I think we all do at some point simply because it's easier than digging and doing the research and finding out for ourselves. I have nothing but the deepest respect for those people who, for whatever reason, they get a bee in their bonnet about, I want to know about whatever it is. I'm going to say vaccinations. I know that's kind of a hot button topic, but they say, I want to research this for myself and see what I can learn. And the, di- the deeper they dig, the more they research, the better informed they become. And, you know, interestingly, not everybody comes to the same conclusions. But they broadened their perspective by confronting ideas that they did not know, confronting ideas with which they may strongly disagree. But the point is their love of truth is stronger than their attachment to their beliefs. And that's hard. Because when we bump up against the limits of what we know, it hurts. And there's that that thing, that ego thing that Ray and I were just talking about, that the pride kicks in. I don't want to look stupid. What would people think if they knew that I didn't even know this? I've been here myself. I, I... It's hard to say the words, I don't know. But the moment you do, you are opening yourself up to a wider world. And and as, as counterintuitive as it sounds, you know, for all the people who are out there so sure of what they know, I am so cocksure that I know all about this. The people that I know who actually have the greatest grasp on how things are around us and the way things work, it's their humility. That's the dead giveaway. They don't have something to prove. They don't have to win the argument on the Internet or or anything like that. They're confident in their ability to sift truth from error, but they're also very open to the idea that even in the midst of that process, no matter how practiced they become, they still might be wrong. And so they have to take whatever they say, they'll often couch it in terms of, I believe this, or it appears that this is the case. As opposed to everybody knows, you know, any fool could see, you know, like I say, the ones, the ones who are the most sure, the ones thumping their chests may not be the ones who really have that great of a grasp of the subject at hand. So how do you become the kind of person? who learns things, who retains information, who has the habits of knowing how to ask the right questions to help fill in the missing pieces. Read books. I'm not kidding. In fact, read books that are over your head. The kind of books where you may have to sit there with a dictionary close by because you stop every so often and say, what the heck does that word mean? And you look it up and you read it until you understand it. You don't just plow through, well, I finished that page in record time. Well, what did you understand about what you read? I don't know. It really went in one ear and out the other. I'm talking about people who are willing to work at reading and understand that learning something is strenuous. It's painful. I think Mortimer Adler described it as like climbing a rope, hand over hand, sweat pouring down your brow because it takes effort. But if that's what it requires to become a more critical thinker 
and a person who is, is more able to sift truth from error, why not do it? Now, believe it or not, a great resource is not textbooks, but actually literature. And yet when you say that word, literature, a lot of people, ugh, oh man, their eyes start to glaze over because they, they're thinking back to what it was like in high school when their teacher threw some literature at them and said, hey, go ahead and read this. Write me a report on it. And they're like, oh, crap. This is so boring. When we come back, I've got a terrific article from Gary Saul Morrison. Four reasons literature needs to be saved from its teachers. This is really great stuff. Stick around. I think you're going to like it. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. All right, welcome back to the show. Yep, this is the segment where I'm going to try to persuade you it's actually worth your time. It's a good thing to find time and a place with some good lighting to sit down and read. You know, it's it's funny. Maybe it's just because the screens are so convenient, right? If I want to read something, I'll pull out my laptop and pull up an article and start reading. But there's there's something to be said for the feel of a book in your hands and time on your hands to actually sit and enjoy. And I kind of miss it because that used to be my my nighttime routine was every night I'd get ready for bed. I'd lay down, pick up a book and read until I found my eyes starting to droop. I'd lay down my book and go to sleep. It was just, you know, I know I'm not the only one who did that. So stop looking at me like I'm some kind of weirdo. I don't do it as much anymore. In fact, I'm I'm a little bit ashamed to admit I uh, probably spend a little bit of time looking at my phone, checking my email. Anybody respond to that meme I post on Facebook? <laughs> no? Fine, I'm going to sleep. But here are four reasons literature needs to be saved from its teachers. This is Gary Saul Morrison. This is published on intellectualtakeout.org. He says, a first-year student explained to him, We read a lot of literature in high school. That's why I don't like it. So when he asked her what she'd read and how it had been taught, she announced, well, Huckleberry Finn, it shows slavery is wrong. And he thought, if you didn't know that already, you have problems more serious than not understanding literature. Now, he says for many years, he taught Northwestern University's largest undergraduate class, which was devoted to two Russian words or two Russian novels, rather. (laughs) Dostoevsky's brothers Kamarazov and Tolstoy's Anna Karenina. Like the freshman bored by Huckleberry Finn, most students had been taught literature in ways bound to discourage anyone from reading more. And here's the reason why. He says four soul-killing approaches predominate. Number one, technical. The most common approach is technical. In this approach, the purpose of reading is to line up parts of the text with technical terms. For example, find the book's protagonist and antagonist. And above all, to find symbols. Reading a masterpiece this way resembles solving a crossword puzzle and not a difficult one, since anyone can find some symbol. For example, there's always water. Sooner or later, someone will drink or wash or cross a river, which could mean purity or baptism or renewal. You name it. Now, he says it's easy to teach this way, and there are lots of books like The Great Gatsby, where every page bristles with symbols. But why bother? 
Number two, simplifying message. Sometimes he says teachers choose a work and reduce it to a simple message. Such teachers can make highly complex works like Huckleberry Finn into banal message carriers. First impressions are misleading. That would be Pride and Prejudice. Child abuse is wrong. Jane Eyre. Stop moping and do something. That would be Hamlet. There's no fool like an old fool. King Lear. But if that's all these works have to say, why not just read Sparks Notes or better memorize the message? Then there's the judgmental aspect. He says the judgmental approach, which high school and college teachers increasingly favor. Now, a decade ago, they might have explained that if only divorce laws had been as enlightened as they are now, Anna Karenina would, have, would not have had such a hard time. Today, they summon authors before their stern tribunal and adjudicate where Shakespeare, Dostoevsky, and Dickens fail to uphold today's standards. But he says if the beliefs one brings to the book are presumed correct, it is impossible to learn anything. It takes time to read Tolstoy. Milton is hard going. Why bother if they made errors that today any middle schooler could identify? And finally, number four, document of the times. He says some instructors reduce great works to documents of their times. Dickens shows us the deplorable conditions of the 19th century workers. Yes, but a factory surveyor's report might do an even better job. What makes a great work worth reading is what not what's is what is not limited to its time and place of origin. Its literariness begins where its documentary documentariness ends. Each of these approaches may yield true statements, but he says none give good reasons to read literature. For instance, he says, I try to show that Dostoevsky's insights about guilt and responsibility can change the way students approach moral questions. Read Kamarazov, and you will soon learn how you deceive yourself. If you want to understand love and who does not, there's no better guide than Tolstoy. And while other disciplines may recommend empathy, great novels offer practice in it. Over hundreds of pages, you identify with people unlike yourself while sharing their thoughts and feelings from within. You rise above your own perspective and imagine how others experience the world. In the process, you acquire skills that carry over to the rest of your life. The test of a literature class should be, do students recognize that great works convey wisdom obtainable nowhere else? Above all, do they want to read more on their own? Now, I'm going to share with you a secret, and it's very important that this stays just between you and me. Okay, so it's just the two of us. What? You thought there were more people listening to this? No, <laughs> it's, just, it's just you and me. If you really want to get the most out of old literature... It's okay to sit and read by yourself. and Maybe you, you write some annotations in the book. I know you were told, don't write in books. Your mother may have spanked you for it as a child. I'm giving you permission and telling you it's okay, as long as it's your book. Okay, if you checked it out from the library, please don't. Do this only with your own books. But the best way to get the most out of a book is to gather with several other people. It could be two or three people. It could be, you know, up to maybe five or ten people. And you have what's called a colloquium. Everyone has read the book or a particular passage. If it's a big book, maybe you want to, you know, meet over the course of several days or several weeks. Okay, we're going to take on the first 10 chapters here and then have people come together who have read the book and talk about their insights. There is no right answer. 
So you're not going to sit there and ridicule one another because, well, you thought that the water stood for something totally different than I did. Just be open to how other people and their emotional associations and their life experience may shade the way that they read the very same words that you read a little differently. And be prepared to offer your insights as well. I know that sounds too good to be true. How could you possibly learn anything from that? But I'm speaking from experience when I tell you I have I have participated in and sat in on and even um, directed quite a number of colloquia. And as fancy pants as that sounds, you know, as uh, me and the rest of the wine and cheese crowd. No, it was just common people from all different walks of life. But you will be stunned at what you can learn and what you can take from a book. And, and I'll tell you, the best part for me always was. I was always shocked at how people saw things or recognized things that I missed when I went through and was reading. And I take notes. And the next time I go back and read it, because, hey, what's the point in reading a great book if you're not going to go back and read it again? You know, that's what makes it a classic. That's what makes it a great book is the willingness to revisit it and relearn from it. And when you go back with those insights that other people have pointed out to you, you catch the little subtle things. That, oh, yeah, I didn't see that before. And it deepens and enhances your experience. Now, I know I'm going on here like, you know, some guy who's got a crush on the librarian. What I have what I have a love for is truth. And even literature, even, you know, fiction. Les Miserables can teach you incredible truth even if it's doing it through fictional characters who never actually existed. Why? Because great literature imparts understanding into human nature. And the faces and names change throughout history, and, you know, the circumstances change throughout history. Human nature does not change. The same stuff that the kings of the Bible struggled with, we struggle with today. The same questions that were on their minds as to what is the purpose of life? What is good? What is bad? What is the right thing to do? Still relevant. Still very much up for discussion. We have some slightly different technology by which we, you know, do our debating and our, our discovery. But you can learn so much about human nature by stepping out of your own time and into another time and examining how even fictional characters react. That's what makes it a classic. There's also this added benefit. This is something C.S. Lewis would have wanted me to point out. When you step out of your own time, you become a little bit more humble because you set aside what he called chronological snobbery. And that's the impression that, well, you know, we're so smart today. We have the Internet. We have smartphones. I drive a Tesla. For crying out loud, what could I possibly learn from Charles Dickens? Well, if you've never picked up uh, one of Charles Dickens' novels and read it, go park your Tesla for a little while, sit down, and read. You might be surprised what you can learn. And you might be surprised at the incredible insights of all that brain power that was being exercised long before you and I came on the scene.
This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. All right, welcome back to the show. Hey, I just want to take a minute here and encourage you, if you live in or around the Wasatch Front in Salt Lake City area, you really should stop by my sponsor, Nikki's Wholesale Food Warehouse. This is, uh, it's not Costco, it's not Sam's Club, it's not a big, bright, uh, well-lit and spotless warehouse. It's a, it's a warehouse. It is, it's an honest-to-goodness warehouse. But I'm telling you that if you are trying to spread your grocery-buying dollars as far as they will possibly go, you can't do better than Nicky's. He gets his food from many different food wholesalers, passes it on to you for incredible savings. Everything, by the way, is 100% money back guaranteed, your satisfaction or your money back. And uh, yes, he accepts EBT, he accepts credit cards, and there's just so much to choose from. You've heard me talk about how this is how I support my barbecue habit because uh, he is he is sitting on just a ton of great meats, brisket, ribs, pork loin, um, frozen chicken breast. And I'm talking, you know, we're talking restaurant size quantities that you can pick up for an absolutely amazing deal. And I'm not trying to fan any fa- flames of fear or anything here, but a lot of people are stocking up right now. They're just kind of getting themselves squared away, whether it's going to be a tough winter or, you know, the election is going to set some things in motion that are going to make it difficult to, to get things in the grocery store, now's a great time to stock up. For directions on how to get to Nikki's Wholesale Food Warehouse, go to their Facebook page, Nikki's N-I-C-K-E-Y-S, Nikki's Wholesale Food Warehouse. The directions are right there. If you're just passing through the Salt Lake City area, it would be well worth your time. And please do me this small favor. When you hand them your card to pay for your purchase, tell them, I came here because I heard Brian talk about you, and I had to see it for myself. I'm confident you're going to be very happy with what you get, and you're going to be very happy with the amount of money you save in the process. Okay, I have something I want to share with you. Um, This is from Barry Brownstein. This is his latest article, and I am I'm so grateful for his take. He's just he's such a breath of fresh air to me and, and, and a reassurance that, OK, there are still some people who get it. There are still some people who have that capacity for critical thought, because what shakes my my faith sometimes in humanity is uh, like when I see video of, of police arresting somebody for not wearing a mask. Typically, I understand it. Well, they're trespassing them, Brian. There's a big difference. But it's the lack of the mask that brought it you know, to this in the first place. And I think. How can we still pride ourselves on being a free society and then most people just stand around and shrug if they're not too busy filming with their, you know, phone camera? So I wanted to share this essay from Barry Brownstein, Mindlessness Fuels Tyranny. He says, it's no surprise that Dr. Anthony Fauci, with a vested interest in perpetuating the current COVID-19 narrative, has called the Great Barrington Declaration nonsense and very dangerous just as angry and closed-minded are the social media reactions from some ordinary people. We will lose many lives, they warn, if we give credence to the Declaration. The fearful are sure only they, not the signers of the Declaration, care about the lives of others. As Don Boudreau writes, much of humanity today appears to be perversely, appears to perversely enjoy being duped into the irrational fear that any one of us, regardless of age or health, 
is at the mercy of a brutal beast categorically more lethal than is any other danger that we've ever confronted. Now, Barry Brownstein says those reacting against the declaration seem to be stuck in time, living in March 2020 when ignorance of the virus's virulence was peaking. There's so much more we know now about COVID-19, yet the fearful will not consider new information or alternative theories. And here he, he reminds us of Antoine de Saint-Exupéry's, I'm saying it wrong, but it's French, parable, The Little Prince. Remember where the prince meets a lamplighter who's continuously lighting and putting out the street lamp? And the prince asks, why have you just put out your lamp? The lamplighter replies, these are the instructions. And he lighted his lamp again. A few more rounds of lighting and putting out the lamp go on. I do not understand, says the puzzled prince. There's nothing to understand, says the lamplighter. Instructions are instructions. Then the lamplighter explained his dilemma to the prince. Once he had a reasonable job, lighting the lamp in the morning and putting it out in the evening. But then the planet turned more rapidly and the orders have not changed. As the length of day changed, the context of a lamplighter's job changed. Yet the lamplighter's instructions did not. Barry Brownstein says famed Harvard psychology professor Ellen Langer, in her book Mindfulness, writes, A context is a premature cognitive commitment, a mindset. We think we know, and we miss a lot. Langer continues, Context depends on who we are today, who we were yesterday, and from which view we see things. If we see the world as something to be controlled by big government, it was natural to applaud the March lockdowns. Initially, those uh, many of those skeptical of big government solutions were also frightened by COVID-19, and then a new context emerged. We now know that COVID-19 death rates are much lower than feared, and policies placing COVID-19 patients in nursing homes fueled many deaths. He says we now know that lockdowns are overly blunt and costly. We now know that children infrequently transmit COVID-19 to each other or to adults. We now know that we successfully reacted differently to past pandemics. He says, we now know, as Matt Ridley writes, the virus spreading among younger people, mostly without hitting the vulnerable, is creating immunity that will eventually slow the epidemic. And Ridley continues, if you cannot extinguish an epidemic at the start, the best strategy is for the healthy to get infected first. Lockdowns ensure that the vulnerable and the healthy both get infected with similar probability. School closures, concluded a recent paper in the British Medical Journal, can paradoxically lead to more deaths by prioritizing the protection of the least vulnerable. End quote. So Barry Brownstein asks, then why did so many governments adopt the same destructive policies about COVID-19? Why are those same governments refusing to adjust? Fear drives hurting behavior, Jeffrey Tucker points out, and points to and leads to political leaders copying each other's ignorance and stupor. Politicians don't want to be seen as reversing course on the most catastrophic policies in modern history. But enough about politicians who behave like the lamplighter and won't change even when the context has. A more important question is, why won't your well-meaning neighbor, family member, or colleague consider new information? Mindfulness training, he says, is fashionable in personal development. Mindfulness is awareness that arises through paying attention on purpose in the present moment, non-judgmentally. That's according to Dr. John Cabot zinn 
If mindfulness is being present to reality, what is mindlessness? Mindlessness is filtering reality through mental biases. Mindlessness is attending to the transitory noisy thoughts in your head without pausing for a reality check. Langer writes, when mindless, people treat information as though it were context-free, true, regardless of circumstances. To advocate policy towards COVID-19 based on changing circumstances is not to deny the reality of the virus. Instead, it allows for a more nuanced and responsible response. So here's a simple test to self-assess assess your mindlessness. When you are certain your anger is righteous, your anxiety is being generated from the world, or a one-size-fits policy, or one-size policy fits all, rather, he says that's when you may have gone mindless. In a state of mindlessness, one does not take responsibility. Trump is at fault for COVID-19 deaths. Your partner is at fault for your low mood. The other driver is at fault for your anger. Take the scenario of a driver who's cut off in highway traffic. Anger swells. His heart races. Mindlessly, the driver floors his accelerator. He tailgates the offending driver. In an instant, the angry driver sees what he's doing. He remembers the time he was distracted and accidentally cut off someone. He wonders what distracted the driver he's following. As the context changes from, how dare you cut me off, to a realization of shared humanity, normalcy returns. Before angry thoughts were placed in a broader context, there seemed to be just one option, anger leading to a road rage conflict. The angry driver had been certain his feelings were caused by the behavior of the other driver, but then he mindfully changed his perspective. Now, there is much, much more to this article, and I really want you to to check it out for yourself. You'll learn why we want to be mindless and how to change from mindlessness to mindfulness. In this context... Barry Brownstein says the Great Barrington Declaration demonstrates a willingness to consider new information and broaden the context for setting policy. Those of us who want hatchet or want sell or want to those who want to sell us centralized hatchet solutions prefer a public that's lulled to mindlessness by one narrative. That's because the mindless will follow instructions. If many people continue to look toward one perspective only without broadening the context, The natural consequence is that experts and politicians on automatic pilot will lead us further down the road to tyranny. You will find this essay in its entirety in the show notes. Actually, you'll find a link to it in the show notes, which you'll find at thebrianheidshow.com. Please subscribe to the the podcast when you're looking at it. This is The Brian Hyde Show.